Um, we've got a dedicated um, tracheostomy tube change protocol for the first tube change because there are numerous problems that can occur if you don't get this right. I remember when I was at medical school, we were told that 50% of what we were being taught back then was likely to be untrue. It's just they couldn't tell us which 50%. And I think that's even more true of what we say about COVID-19 and its implications and complications. Welcome to the first episode of BLA Connections, A Clear Voice. This podcast is brought to you by the British Laryngological Association, the BLA. I'm Natalie Watson, your host. I'm a BLA council member representing trainees and an ENT specialty registrar with a passion for laryngology. Our podcasts endeavour to fulfil the aims of the BLA to achieve advancement in laryngology for the benefit of the public and the wider medical community through research, education and training, whilst promoting all medical, surgical and rehabilitative aspects of laryngology. Each episode, we will be inviting an expert to share their views, experiences and guidance to discuss and explore scientific topics, breaking research and updated guidelines, cutting through the noise and providing a clear voice. Our first guest is one of the leading academic otolaryngologists in the world, one of the leading academic surgeons in Europe and an international figure in the field of translational regenerative medicine. His work is dedicated to the successful translation of innovative technologies with a focus of alleviating suffering and improving the quality of life for those with the disorders of the head and neck, airway, voice and swallowing. He is a founding member of the BLA and our immediate past president. Welcome, Professor Martin Birchall. Thank you very much, Natalie. It's, uh, it's great to be able to help out with the BLA on this podcast. Thank you, Prof, for joining us. I thought a brief conversation focusing on COVID-19 and the dangers and issues this has presented to the ENT community, and in particular laryngologists, would be a great way to start our podcast series. So our first question, COVID-19 seems to be markedly heterogeneous in its clinical presentation ranging from people reporting no symptoms to multi-organ failure. From your experience, Prof, what are the features of the COVID-19 infection in the larynx, pharynx and trachea that you have seen and that the ENT community and others should be aware of? Yeah, no, thanks very much. I mean, this is a a unique moment in time. Um, I think I'd like to start just by saying that you're quite right to say, what is my experience? because this is such an evolving landscape. I remember when I was at medical school, we were told that 50% of what we were being taught back then was likely to be untrue. It's just they couldn't tell us which 50%. And I think that's even more true of what we say about COVID-19 and its implications and complications. So I think you know anybody listening to this needs to be aware that anything that I say may prove to be nonsense in three months' time. Uh, it's simply based on our experience to date and, and the papers that I've seen. The papers also are not desperately helpful. The volume is increasing exponentially. In February, there were about 600 papers dealing with COVID-19 in the world literature. And today there is something like 100,000. So it's just difficult to keep up with what everybody's saying anyway. So that big caveat around that. However, 
I do work at University College Hospital London, which has been uh, one of the biggest centres in Britain dealing with the more severe COVID patients. And uh, through the BLA, I'm in contact with many centres around Britain, especially some of those in London who have also had heavy numbers. And so this is not just my experience, it's it's partly that of those around us as well. So it's a more of a, a collective response. Okay, so, you know, we're seeing a a wide range of problems. The vast majority of people either have very mild symptoms or flu-like symptoms. And for them, we think at the moment it tends to resolve. They can get uh, ENT complications in the form of oral and oropharyngeal ulceration. And there are reports of people developing chronic cough afterwards. But by and large, the vast majority of people are not troubling us. That may not necessarily mean that they are not suffering from complications of COVID, and time will tell. Uh, As we know, people aren't able to access uh, primary care easily, let alone secondary care, and they're also afraid to present themselves to hospitals to be seen, not unreasonably. So I I think particularly the, the wider community out there appears to be dealing with this very well. But again, we will only know in the longer term. So we are seeing at UCH the more severe end of the spectrum. And that's really what's taking up most of my time. And there, we not only have the direct problems of COVID itself, but we've also got all the comorbidities that go with it. In particular, the effects on the lungs with the edema that then moves rapidly onto pulmonary fibrosis and the very high incidence of thromboembolic disorders with clots into the lungs and elsewhere in the body including strokes, um, DVTs, uh, heart attacks, and so on. On top of that, there's the renal failure. And then the renal failure combined with the need for thromboembolism, uh, uh, thromboprophylaxis, means that we have to face the complications of bleeding from the airways and ENT orifices. COVID causes uh, inflammation of the lungs. Uh, There's a primary infection and then there's a secondary response. And it's the secondary response by the immune system that causes the major problems in the lungs that we have to deal with on intensive care units. So not only does the inflammation affect the lungs, it does affect the upper airways as well. And this is not surprising, given that the, one of the main targets of the coronavirus is the ACE2 receptor. ACE2 receptors are, um, they are expressed in very high numbers on respiratory mucosa, um, as well as the kidneys and the heart. Uh, And so it's no wonder that the virus goes primarily for those organs. Um, But there are large numbers of ACE2 receptors in the nose, pharynx, larynx and trachea. Uh, And so it'd be surprising if we didn't see some response. Heterogeneity is a really good way to describe the response, though. We know that genetics, changes in microbiology and changes in medications are all predisposing factors for airway stenosis in, in the general population pre-COVID. So it's going to be absolutely true here as well. Whether people uh, need ventilating and when they are ventilated, how they respond is going to be down to these combinations of comorbidities, genetics and microbiology, as well as the medications they're on. Nearly all of our patients intensive care at the London teaching hospitals are taking part in clinical trials and they might be given uh, hydroxychloroquine or interleukin receptor antagonists or antiviral medications or dexamethasone um, or one of a variety of newer small molecule agents. So the responses to these are also unknown in these patients. So the heterogeneity is absolutely true. I think it's important to remember that in COVID-19, 
people are still people and they still get the normal disorders as well. So, you know, there's no reason why somebody in the middle of a coronavirus crisis might not, uh, for example, develop vocal cord polyps for some other reason or be suffering from reflux. So we, we do need to bear in mind that if, if people are contacting us about potential coronavirus-related problems, it might simply be part of the normal spectrum of disease. However, there is a much more important question, and that is the delay in diagnosis of cancer. I'm not going to cover that in detail here, and I think others may cover this in later podcasts, I hope. But it's certainly going to be the case that we will miss early laryngeal cancers. There's been a big predictive study done by the London Cancer Collaborative, which is the Royal Marsden Hospital, UCH, London, St. Bart's and Imperial. And they found that in the first month alone of lockdown, we probably have missed about 500 cancers across the board. This is going to disproportionately affect some cancer sites more than others. Um, So I think we do need to be aware that we're going to see a change in the staging and presentation of cancer once we come out of this, let alone during it. Um, But I'll leave that to others to discuss. I wondered whether or not you could share your experience of the um, microlaryngoscopy and bronchoscopy of the patient that you recently have discussed. Yeah, so I, th- I think it is important to visualise the uh, the upper airway in people when we have the opportunity to do so and when it's important to do so. You know, I don't uh, propose that we go wandering around intensive care units, laryngoscoping every single patient, but I, I don't think we're necessarily doing it enough. There's quite a lot of delayed extubation, for example, and we don't know why that is. That can be down to... Uh, problems with the cardiovascular system or the respiratory system. It doesn't have to be upper airway. But it seems reasonable that prior to trying to extubate a patient with coronavirus where they're not getting a good leak around the cuff, we should uh, make some attempt to to have a look at the upper airway. It may also be that we can then advise them to postpone extubating the patient, or there may be other things that we can propose, such as downsizing a tube even in one case that I had injecting some local steroids to reduce the upper airway inflammation um, or, you know, managing the commonplace, like making sure that they're properly treated for reflux. They're nearly all refluxing anyway. So I think there's quite an advantage in our taking opportunity to look at the upper airway um, before extubation, before we do tracheostomies, uh, when we do tracheostomy changes and before we decannulate people. So a kind of consistent finding has been inflammation in the upper airway. Now, what we don't know is whether this is simply because we're dealing with a group of people with a lot of comorbidities who've been intubated for two or three weeks. And what we're seeing is simply the result of people being um, supine, pronated, refluxing tubes in, often big tubes for, for a long time or whether it's actually coronavirus-specific. It's difficult to separate, separate out these two things. Um, but there does seem to be an emerging pattern that's worse than we would normally see in long-term uh, ventilated patients and long-term intubated patients. So what we characteristically see when we have these opportunities to look at the patients whose upper airways here not to be as great as they should be, um, is um, edema, particularly subglottic and upper tracheal edema, extending down, importantly, the level where we would perform a tracheostomy. We were also seeing ulceration, 
in the supraglottis, glottis, and subglottis. Again, how much of that is directly coronavirus-related and how much of it's down to the long tubes is really difficult to say. However, the, the distribution of uh, the inflammation and scarring and uh, ulceration uh, does kind of map on to where we would expect the respiratory mucosa to be. As we know, in adults, the uh, mucosa of the supraglottis tends to become more squamous, more metaplastic, uh, and that reduces the number of ACE2 inhibitors. So we would expect that if we were going to get coronavirus-related problems, it wouldn't necessarily be throughout the supraglottis. It might be patchy, but it certainly would be in the subglottis. And that's kind of what we're seeing. So that's circumstantial uh, support for the idea that this is a coronavirus-related issue. Um, so, yeah, the ulceration um, in the subglottis um, and the edema extending down to the level where we might perform tracheostomy. And th- this is pretty important when you do want to perform two reasons. First of all, when you get down to the level of the trachea, um, we're finding that there is more localised inflammation at that level than we would normally expect and probably more bleeding from the window edges when you make a tracheostomy. You do need to be prepared with some bipolar for that. Um, we're clearly, we're going to try and avoid using diathermy and bipolar as much as possible in, a, in any operation because of the risk of uh, aerosolization of the plume. Um, but it, I think it probably is necessary once you get down to the level of the window itself because of the coronavirus inflammation in that. Um, there's an argument about what size tracheostomy tube you put into these patients because of this edema. Um, do you put in smaller ones or larger ones? The argument for smaller ones is that the space is smaller. And if you put a smaller one in, you're less likely to cause um, depression and theoretically stenosis later on. The argument for putting in a bigger one is that as the edema goes down, you're less likely to have to change the tube at an early stage, which reduces risk and the number of interventions required. Also, uh, with a larger tube, you're more able to uh, pass bronchoscopes um, to perform pulmonary toilet. So the jury's out, and I don't know the answer to that. So, so those are the things that we're seeing. That's a great description. Thank you very much. So what implications does this have on both the ventilated and non-ventilated patient? Um, so I think the main issues are that um, we need to be cautious about um, extubation uh, and tracheostomy. Um, we need to be very careful when we're doing tracheostomy tube changes also. Um, I think there are also some other related issues um, which can complicate matters when considering the upper airway of these patients. Uh, for example, um, they are more prone to angioedema, and we've seen patients with swollen tongues. And this is because uh, when you, the SARS-CoV-2 attaches to the ACE2 receptors, this means that you also get an inactivation of bradykinin, which is a potent vasodilator. And the SARS-CoV-2 virus brings it into the cell and deactivates it increases the bradykinin, which can predispose to angioedema. We've seen a number of patients now with swollen tongues, heads, faces, and so on. So again, you know, one does need to be aware of that. So from your observations, what practical measures would you suggest to kind of minimise long-term sequelae? So I think there's quite a lot that we need to think about. Um, We clearly don't know the best way of, of managing these patients, but it's all evolving. Uh, There are, however, quite a lot of things that we can do which kind of make sense. I think the first thing is really close liaison between uh, laryngology, ENT, or head and neck, and the intensive care units. 
there are huge issues with staffing uh, the busiest ICUs at the moment. With anaesthetists aren't used to being there necessarily, very high turnover in staff, and they're just incredibly overwhelmed. And therefore, it's easy for airway care to be pushed to one side. Therefore, what we are doing now is we have a multidisciplinary tracheostomy team. Um, we have 5.30 every evening we discuss tracheostomy-related issues, but increasingly other airway-related issues at the ICU. Three times a week, we have a ward round, which includes the uh, wards, the step-down unit and the ICU. Um, and we actually go in and um, check on patients, not only with tracheostomies, but patients having oral issues such as the angioedema, such as patients who are fitting and biting their tongues, people who are bleeding. Many of these patients are on high-level anticoagulation to reduce the clots going to their lungs, DVTs, patients and so on. And therefore, we're seeing a lot of excess bleeding from oral cavity and nose, as well as other parts of the body. So very closely liaison with ITU can nip these things in the bud and make sure that people, the patients are uh, optimally managed. I think the second point is the one I've already made, and that if we have an opportunity to visualize the airways, we should do so, and preferably record what we see, even if it's just with an iPhone in a specimen bag, um, so that uh, you can uh, get a view of what's going on and, and be able to record it. We use ambuscopes a lot. These are disposable bronchoscopes. Um, other disposable bronchoscopes may be available, um, but these have been utterly invaluable. Um, both on the ward rounds, the tracheostomy care, uh, doing tracheostomies and tube changes. They've just been a godsend because uh, the smaller one, particularly, you can pass parallel to an ET tube if you have to or look down further. Um, but you can look into noses, you can pass them into the mouth and have a look around the mouth. You can use them to pass down um, tracheostomy tubes before tube changes to estimate the distance between the tip of the tube and the, the carina. Um, you can check for Malaysia, and they have a um, an, a window on the box which allows you to take photographs too. So you know, I I think one should always take the opportunity to visualise, and this will not only help us in the immediate, but it also help us going forwards when we look back on this this time to try and see what the predictors were of later complications. As I say, we need to think about what size um, tracheostomy tubes we're putting in. Some are putting in very big, some putting in smaller. It, it's, it's difficult to know what the best thing is. What we're seeing a lot of is uh, tracheomalacia. And I'm grateful to colleagues at Charing Cross for pointing this out, particularly Guri Sandhu and Alyaki. What tends to happen is that not only does the edema go down over time, but um, a week or more after the primary insertion of tracheostomy tube, you start to get a leak even with big tubes. So the, the concept of putting in a bigger tube because you're going to stop a leak later on is not necessarily going to help because you just get an area of localised tracheomalacia and you could just keep upsizing. I mean, I've seen patients with size 10 put in to try and get around this problem, but you're just going to dilate that floppy area of trachea a bit more. Right. What you need to consider is exposing a different bit of trachea to, to cough. Uh, and we are therefore using a lot of size 8 and size 9 adjustable flange tubes as our first change, because that then enables us to put the cuff precisely over an area of unaffected trachea and allow the other area. So I think that's pretty important. 
Um, we've got a dedicated um, tracheostomy tube change protocol for the first tube change because there are numerous problems that can occur if you don't get this right. It's essential that you have a really good anaesthetist with you, that you've got the uh, emergency airway trolley available, uh, and that you treat it like a proper operation, even if it's in the ICU. So you have a team brief. Everybody knows who's there. You run through the whole operation, and you run through what's going to happen if you, or if the patient starts bleeding around the tube, um, or if you encounter other problems. You've really got to take this seriously. We use a bougie um, and we make sure that we visualise the upper airway so we know how difficult it's going to be to intubate if we have to. We had one patient who had such profound angioedema, it would have been impossible. And we simply didn't do the tube change, even though there was a leak. Um, and you need very close liaison with, with, your, with your team. You uh, need a proper step-down area, which needs to be properly staffed. And I think all hospitals now are dealing with this. I think um, Yakuba Karagama, who's giving the next podcast, will be dealing with this, actually. Uh, guys in St. Thomas is where he works, um, have probably the best step-down area in Britain. It was um, almost tailor-made before all of this. Um, and that, of course, was where our minister was treated. I'll, I'll leave that to, to Yakuba to discuss. There's uh, something that's a real um, thing of mine, uh, and that is communication. When everybody is full PPE'd up, it's really difficult. Uh, and this is critical uh, in the context of being in ICU, doing tube changes and doing tracking. Therefore, we've been trying a whole raft of different ways of improving comms between team members, trying to use off-the-shelf stuff that, you know, anybody could get hold of. Um, the simplest thing that we've found that helps is using, um, we've been using something called Apple Power Beats, actually, which are uh, Bluetooth earphones, but lots of Bluetooth earphones are available from other manufacturers. And you can link people on a um, a small group chat um, through the internet. The problem with that is you get echo if you're very close to each other, uh, but it works really well for the anaesthetic teams who aren't quite as close as the surgeons. And it does mean that everybody on that group chat knows what's going on. Uh, more recently, we've um, been able to get a more bespoke um, set of equipment from uh, Formula One motor racing, which they use the pit crews. And I think in future, um, that kind of approach to communication under PPA is going to be absolutely essential in reducing errors. I think that we should all be aware this is a unique moment in time. We don't know how long this moment is going to last, but it is pretty unique. And one of the things I've been asking myself is looking back on this in six months, a year, five years from now, what would we wish we had recorded that would allow us to understand what was happening better? And the answer is we don't really know, but we should try and record as much as we can, as well as we can. And therefore, I urge everybody who's listening to this to participate in audit. Um, I know there's a Royal College of Speech and Language Therapy audit of uh, tracheostomy care uh, in these patients. And uh, the BLA have partnered with uh, ENT UK uh, in launching a an audit of tracheostomies from the more surgical point of view. And I urge everybody to participate in these. If people want to go further than that, there is, there's an international audit uh, called COVID Surge, C-O-V-I-D-S-U-R-G, which is run from Birmingham. It's very easy to log on to this and to register any cases that you do with COVID Surge. And it has a subgroup called COVID Cancer for any head and neck cancer cases. So I think it is beholden on us to record everything. And as I say, image things whenever you can. 
it's all going to become really valuable when we try and understand the inevitable complications of this later on. I know that Yakubu uh, tomorrow is going to deal with uh, the long-term issues, um, but clearly they are going to be major, and we do need to understand things. Uh, the final thing I'd, I'd like to say is that the sequel A of this huge amount of airway care for uh, ENT surgeons, uh, or speech therapists, nurses, the intensivists, the anaesthetists we work with, the sequel A for them is also enormous. The exhaustion, the burden of the PPE, the real, uh, real tangible worry about self and family, which is so much more acute when we lose ones we know, relatives and fellow members of our profession, which, as we know, is very sadly happening. And therefore, I think we really do need to support each other a lot during this time. And I think we're going to have to keep supporting each other a lot, probably for many months and even years to come. The psychological effects are not going to blow over easily, and we all need to act together. All I see around me anyway is a huge sense of community spirit and everybody pulling together in a way we've never pulled together before. I think we would value anybody to share their experiences, practical, um, diagnostic, uh, amusing, moving. Uh, and the BLA Twitter site is a great forum for this, for anybody who's involved in care of patients with airway disorders uh, in the COVID crisis. Um, and I'm quite sure the BLA would welcome any contributions to that. Um, we all need to pull together, and uh, the BLA is part of that. Thank you so much for your excellent insights and information on the laryngological aspects of COVID-19. Finally, Prof, what main message would you like our listeners to take home today? One main message is that for the laryngologist, uh, the presentations of patients with COVID-19 are significant and evolving. But we really don't know what is happening in the acute phase, let alone the long-term phase. And therefore, we need to be flexible uh, we need to work together to collect as much information as possible and share as much and just be really flexible in our management of our patients. Absolutely. So I'd like to thank you for joining us today and thank you for everything you do for your patients, laryngology and furthering research. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been BLA Connections, a clear voice. Our next guest will be Yakubu Karagama on further lessons to learn and insights from treating patients with COVID-19 and the next steps we need to adopt to restart surgical services. Please feel free to email any topics you would like us to explore, any questions you have, along with any suggested experts you would like to hear from. Also, if you'd like to contribute to these podcasts, please email inquiries at britishlaryngological.org. Thank you for listening and we hope you found our podcast informative. Please remember to subscribe to BLA Connections.